Hello, and welcome to Loved Ones Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Kathy. This podcast was created to keep the memories alive of children who have passed away and to hopefully help others who have lost children to know that they're not alone in their grief. As a disclaimer, I am not a health professional or a counselor, just someone who has also experienced the loss of a child. I feel that talking about our lost children helps to heal the heartache that comes from the death of a child. So each episode, we will talk to parents, grandparents, siblings, and friends who have had to go on after their loved ones have passed away and relive some of the memories of their lost loved ones. tell me your name and where you're from and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, my name is Susanna Olson and I am the mom of Crystal and uh, I have other children, Christopher and Nicole and an adopted son and I'm a stepmom of three others and I'm married to my sweetheart Jim for the last 25, almost 24 years, but we've been together 25. And I live in Vancouver, Washington. And um, unfortunately, we lost our crystal uh, a couple years ago. And um, today I wanted to share her story. Well, thank you for joining us today. Mm -hmm. So when was Crystal born and when did she pass away? Crystal was born June 19th, 1981 at 2.18 in the morning. And she passed away October 22nd or 21st. We're not quite sure. Somewhere in that time frame, um, she went to, sleep, went to sleep, and we don't know for sure, of 2018. Um, her husband had, uh, she'd been not feeling well that whole week, and her husband, Jason, um, had gone in to go to bed and seen that she was kind of sleeping in the middle of the bed, so he didn't want to disturb her, so he went and slept on the couch just to let her rest and uh when he came in to check on her and get ready for work at three in the morning she was gone and she was cold oh my goodness so we don't know if she passed in the you know before midnight or after midnight but she was really cold so what yeah. was her cause of death uh crystal had uh ppms which is primary progressive multiple sclerosis she was diagnosed at the age of 32 um we started seeing symptoms, um, just little things, probably around the age of 30, but didn't know what they were. Uh, she'd been going to veterinarian tech school, and she had just finished veterinarian tech school and had gotten hired at a veterinarian's office. And she noticed that she was having tremors in her hands and an eye twitch and the occasional weakness in her, you know, in her ability to lift an, a dog. And, you know, she mentioned that to me and she's like, mom, my arms just feel really weak suddenly. It's just the weirdest thing, you know, and she just say stuff to me in passing. And one thing you got to understand about Crystal is she was, you know, maybe 140 pounds dripping wet, five foot, probably hand, maybe five foot 11 ish. Um, just a strong go-getter, super mom with two daughters, a husband, 
Um, she liked to go camping. She liked to go fishing. She, you know, they'd go for walks. They'd go walk through the eight caves and just, I mean, she was go, go, go mom. You know, she had so much energy. She was my kid that I could pick up the phone and say, hey, dad and I just went and bought a new washer and dryer and we need to have you come help us move it upstairs. And she'd be there, Johnny on the spot, pushing that thing up the stairs with her dad. You know, that was her. Wow. She always that kid that I could say, hey, we're going to move. Can you come help me pack? And she'd, she'd come knock it out in a day with me. You know, we could knock out the whole house in a day, you know. She was just that kid, and she was the kid that if she had to borrow 20 bucks, she would come work it off if she couldn't pay me back. You know, she was just, she was always that kind of person. And she she stopped working at the vet's office because she just felt like she couldn't lift the, the dogs and stuff. She was really concerned about it. And so she went to, uh, got training as a med tech at a nursing home. As she went to work for this nursing home and um, passing meds. And she just loved it there. And they all loved her. I mean, she called everybody grandma and grandpa. She had hugs for everybody. I mean, they, they'd see her come and they'd be like, Crystal, Crystal, give me a hug. You know, they, these people just loved my daughter. Oh, my gosh. It was amazing. She would light up a room. Like, everybody just loved Crystal. And But then if you made Crystal mad, she definitely got her temper from her mother because... <laughs> Um, I'm one of those people that will just tell you where, you know, the bear goes and does his business at, and I have no problem with telling you that kind of thing. And she's that way. <laughs> and, you know, she's, she's, she's kind of one of those, uh, tells you how it is kind of people, you know, if you're doing wrong, she'll tell you. <laughs> she kind of gets it from the mom, I think. <laughs> I have to take credit for it because that's kind of what it, what, how it turned out, but um, but she and I kind of started out really rough. Um, uh, I got pregnant with her um, in September of uh, 80. And um, my her dad and I got married in January of 81. And two weeks later, he caught a plane, went, left to go to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and didn't look back and left me um, pregnant and alone. And um, didn't call, didn't send any child support make any effort to help me out nothing and I didn't have anybody to help me and I was by myself once again and um there I was you know just 15 years old with a new baby on the way and um of course no help from my mom my sisters had moved out of state by that point uh, the one with her baby to go be with her guy and my other sister had left my mom's house to go be with her new guy and um every conversation my mom would have with them they would ask you know how am I doing and my mom would lie to them and say she's doing great well my mom didn't know because she never talked to me, so wow. she didn't know her. so I carried on as best I could um the apartment that we were supposed to rent um my ex that took off on me um he took every dime I had to my name so the only thing I had coming in was WIC, and so I lived off of WIC, and my mom moved in with her um, sister, and so she, the house that she had went into foreclosure, and um, they didn't lock it all the way up right, so I could get in through a window, so I climbed in through a window, and I lived in this house with no utilities in it for the winter because I didn't have any other choice. 
And then um, I would go up to the laundromat that was like two door, two streets up and I'd stay in the laundromat to stay warm during the day. And then at night I'd go back to the house and pile a ton of blankets over the top of me to keep me warm at night. Cause it was January or February and March. I mean, it was cold. Right. And I did that for the whole time until it was time to have my baby. And then when I had my baby, I was able to finally get on public assistance and I got an apartment and uh, the guy that was going to originally rent the pl a place to me and my husband um, felt sorry for me and went ahead and rented a place to me. And uh, so I rented this apartment just a couple block, couple blocks from where I was originally was at and made a little house, a little home for me and my baby. And I didn't have a dime to my name. I mean, I had my state money now, but I didn't have any furniture. I didn't have a crib. I didn't have anything. So I had to, you know, like a little bit at a time, whenever I could get a piece, I, you know, get somebody to help me to, you know, get it. And I met the downstairs neighbor and he was just a nice older guy that was just really sweet. And, uh, he helped me get like a dresser and then a crib and stuff like that for, for crystal. And, um, and so I just kind of, you know, goodwilled it, you know, picked up mm -hmm. a little bit of bitches and just the basics that I needed to survive. And then eventually I kind of got, you know, a little bit more of what I needed and, you know, created a little home. And then I would walk with her in a stroller and we would walk 12, I think it was like 12 blocks up to the grocery store so I could get a bag of groceries. And then I would take the bus back and I had one of those umbrella strollers. So I'd carry her and the umbrella stroller, I'd have it hooked to my arm. If <laughs> the back of groceries in the other arm like this, and I take the bus back <laughs> because I, I could walk up and save the money for the bus fare going up, but I couldn't walk back because I couldn't carry all of that and push her too. Wow. So <laughs> I did that for, you know, months and months and months. And I, didn't, I didn't have a car, didn't know how to drive anyway. And um, I did that for quite a while. And every time I would go to the grocery store, I'd have to pass this you know, this one little house and this guy was always out there and he'd, he'd talk to me. Hey, how you doing? You know, that kind of thing. And so I met this man and one day he asked me if I wanted to ride and I was like, no, that's okay. But thank you, you know, and just move on. And eventually he finally, you know, showed up at the grocery store. He was sitting out in front of the grocery store with this car. He now do you want to ride? <laughs> you know? And so I was able to get more groceries that way. And and so he helped me out and that was really nice. And we became friends and that was just all it was. And he helped me out for a long time. And, um, and then we actually started dating and whatever. And, uh, then I ended up having his baby and we were together for a couple of years. And then he and I moved to Florida with my two kids. I sold everything I had, moved to Florida with him was there about two months and then he paid for a hotel room for me for a week and then he left me and said, oh my see God. ya. Wow. <laughs> and I had nothing again and had to start over again. And um, I called my mom and begged her to send me a plane ticket so I could get back to Oregon. So she got me a plane ticket. And when I got here, I had no place to go when I got here. Because the person I was supposed to stay with um, didn't confirm it with his parents. And so I ended up getting here and no place to go. But I got a hold of some old friends and they said, let me stay at their place. And then they rented, a, they, they let me, they had just bought a, an apartment complex. 
and they hadn't even renovated all the units or anything yet. And they let me stay in one of the units for a couple months until I could get things in back in order. So thank God for nice, for nice people. And they helped me out there. And, and then I got moved back up to Vancouver again and started over again, you know, and I did that for a while. And with Crystal and I, you know, when she was first born, we, you know, we laid into those blankets and every day we'd go up to the little, you know, little uh, laundromat there for a while and to keep warm and, you know, just in the winter months and stuff. And so we got that apartment and then that apartment, you know, like I had to fight with the utility companies just to get the heat and stuff turned on and utilities turned on because I wouldn't do it because I was a minor. I was only 16 or 15 at the time. And they were, I was trying, I was still pregnant with her at the time. And I was fighting with them, trying to get the gas company and the electric company to turn it on, you know, and I was like trying to tell them, look, I have state assistance, you know, I was trying to show them my records and they just mm-hmm. wouldn't listen. And I mean, I was like standing outside the door screaming at these people, like, I'm going to be having a baby in, you know, a month and you people won't even turn on my freaking utilities, you know, oh like I was God. so mad and I was like, I'm an emancipated minor. Come on, you know? I said, I'm freaking married. Turn on my utilities, you know? Like, they just would wow. not listen. Ugh. And then finally, this guy I met, this guy that helped me out with the, the ride, he went down there and said, look, you know, she's going to be having a baby, and you need to turn it on. This was just before I had her, because he knew I was, you know, going to have her. But he, I had been going up there because I'd walked up to the store because, like I said, I had to wit, and so that was my only source of food, really. Mm-hmm. You get peanut butter and cheese and stuff like that, and so I'd go up and get milk and peanut butter and cheese. And, I mean, and we became friends because he'd seen me walk by all the time, and then when I had her, finally, you know, he helped me out. But it was just like a lot of stuff, and I couldn't get people, you know, realistically to understand that I needed utilities turned on, you know, yeah. this part I just got. And it took me a while to get this this landlord to help me out in the first place, you know, convincing him that I promised him I would pay my rent no matter what, because I needed a place for me and my baby. And then, you know, when I had her, it was like, finally I had her. And then I couldn't get the utility company to cooperate, you know, wow. and it's not that it was that cold, but I could, you know, I didn't even have any way to cook or anything because it was, you know, electric cooking, you know, stove yeah. and stuff. Then I couldn't turn a heater on if I needed it. And it was just so frustrating. I was like, you know and so when I moved out of that apartment I moved out of there and moved in with this guy because one night um my my downstairs neighbor he was just the nicest guy every time he would go out of town he would leave a telephone in the hallway between the two units I had the upstairs unit and had the downstairs unit and he'd leave it in the hallway so that I could use the phone if I had an emergency because he always worried about me having a baby and mm-hmm. there being an emergency and I couldn't afford a phone. And so he was like, I'm going out of town. I'll be gone a week, you know, and I'm going to just leave my phone right here. If you need it, it's there. You know, I was like, Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you so much. I never used it, you know, out of mm-hmm. respect. It was never used it, but it was nice knowing that it was there, you know? Well, this one night he went out to go get in the cab and um, just as he stepped out the door, he got shot and killed right outside the door. Oh yeah. my God. And the guy was, there was a guy out there robbing the cab driver. And so he shot my neighbor and then shot the cab driver and robbed them and killed them both right there in front of my apartment. And I oh. cried my eyes out for days and I just, I couldn't stay there anymore. Like I couldn't stay there anymore. 
So I packed her up and we left and went over to my friend's house and just said, can we stay with you? Because I was so scared to be alone by myself with a baby in that situation. And I had no other place to go. So that's where I went. And then, like I said, from there on, we were together for about three, almost three years. And then he then did that because he he didn't believe that my son was his son, which was a bunch of crap because... I hadn't been anywhere with anybody else but him, oh you know? my God. So that's why he left me in Florida like that. So stupid. Oh. Yep. And now I found, we just found out, actually recently my son did his ancestry DNA and found out that he was his, he is his son. So whatever. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I always knew he was because yeah. he looked Yeah, you know, you know, I hadn't been with anybody else. So I already knew. So anyway, back to Crystal. Um, it just all goes in hand in hand. Crystal was just that kid that, like I said, she was always my helper. You know, she's five years older than her little sister. Um, her and her sister just, they kind of had the love-hate relationship. Um, the day I had uh, my youngest daughter was on my son's birthday. And um, I was carrying a bag of groceries into the house for my son's birthday party. And I tripped going in the door. Landed on a grocery bag, ruptured my stomach, ended up having to have emergency surgery. Oh my goodness. She came out purple, two pounds, 11 ounces. Her head fit in the palm of my hand. She was in the NIC unit for weeks and weeks and weeks. I didn't know she was going to survive or not. She just so tiny, so tiny. She kept having seizures. Her little lungs weren't quite developed. I mean, she just wasn't quite there. They kept her for a while until she hit five pounds, and then they let her let me bring her home. I was on a she was on a monitor for a while, and Crystal would always just sit there and go, "It's okay, baby. It's okay." And she'd pet her hair, and you know, she'd play, you know, hold her little finger, and she she just talked to her and talked to her. And she'd say, "My baby, mommy. My baby, mommy." You know, because Crystal was just five. When her mm-hmm. sister was born, and she would just, she would help me with bottles and changing her and taking care of her, and just that was her baby, you know. She just did everything for her. It was the cutest thing ever, and um, oh, it was, it was really precious. And my son, he he basically hated her from the get go. You ruined my birthday. You ruined my birthday. He was just three, and he kept saying that. You ruined my birthday. You ruined my birthday. I don't like you. You know. Oh, no. My birthday. He even got so mad that while I was in the hospital having his sister, he got into the cake in the refrigerator and made a mess out of it because he was so mad. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding you. And those two, they don't get along. They're both they're both born on the same day, and they do not get along. Wow. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. <laughs> Wowee. Uh-huh. Yeah. April 29th, and they fight like the bull. They, the tourists that they are, they fight. Oh, my goodness. It's insane. It's like they both are on the same power trip or something, you know? Wow. So they're always butting heads about everything. So that's been my nightmare forever. She's 35. He's he's 38, and it's just a fight. All oh, my time. goodness. <sighs> and the funny thing about it is my oldest sister and I are five years apart, and her and I don't get along at all, but my sister in the middle and I get along, and we're born on the same day. Interesting. But we're, yeah, you know, ours is January, though. We're Capricorns. Okay. So weird. I don't know. 
I don't know so, how my mom was. Can you tell me about your last encounter with Crystal before she passed? Yeah. Um, well, when Crystal was diagnosed uh, in 2014, of course, we were all shocked because um, we just, it, it was unexpected. It was not something that we thought was going to ever happen. We didn't know about this in our family line at all. Um, you know, we, honestly, I was devastated. Like I was devastated because I just didn't, I just honestly didn't expect this because I'd never heard of any of it being in our family at all. But at that time I didn't know my dad's side yet. And so I didn't know that there was history there. Um, they say it's not a hereditary thing, but I call BS on that because it's can't have as many people in one family that have a version of multiple sclerosis. And then hers is a very rare type. And so because hers is the rarest type, um, the drug companies don't make medicine or anything to slow this particular type down because it wasn't lucrative for them in, in the 90s to, to, to be bothered with it. So they just didn't bother to even try to find some kind of way to slow the progression of this down. They started kicking out something now just about a year ago. But back, back in the 90s when they should have been studying it and doing something to try and slow the progression down, they just didn't bother with it because it's like one out of every million people that get this. Wow. And so you know, they just didn't bother with it. The relapsing remitting is the most common, but primary progressive is just that. It's so progressive. And when she was diagnosed, and I don't know if you know much about MS, but the way MS works is it, it uh, hits the outer layer of the protective layer that goes over our nerves. And so when the message gets sent from the brain to travel down the nerve to go to the extremity or the heart or the lungs or the eye or whatever to do a particular thing, blink, swallow, breathe, beat your heart, whatever, if, it does, if the brain can't send the message, the message gets lost. Okay, in the process. Well, if it gets lost, where does the message go? It goes nowhere. Okay. And then that part of your body doesn't know what to do. So once it hits that vital area where it's your lungs or your heart, then those things stop working. And unfortunately for Crystal, she already had white mat brain matter. They call it white brain matter. She already had white bands all the way to her brain stem when she was diagnosed. And they don't typically see that much in the first diagnosis. That's why she was given five years or less. But she wasn't told that. We didn't tell her that because we wanted her to fight. You know, we just wanted her to know that she had this disease and we just wanted her to fight. And she's not stupid. She researched it herself, mm -hmm. you know, and she did a lot. She knew she was sick. She knew that she probably wouldn't be here real long, but she didn't really know the time frame. And so she was just a go-getter. Like she walked two K five Ks, um, the last two years of her life, um, she for MS, she was out there handling out bottles of water to the guys that were doing bicycles, bicycle for MS. You know, she was out there handing them water and down in uh, Corvallis and stuff. And, you know, she was contributing whatever way she could. Um, you know, she was out there with her walker. She was wearing her tutu. She had a big orange tutu on that she made. And she had her, her headband on. <laughs> It's hilarious. Please I mean, tell me you have a picture of that. I do. I got it to show you. It's hilarious. She just looks hilarious on it. Hopefully I can show you. But she, uh, you know, she just was one of those people that was determined that she was going to just do whatever she could to, um, you know, contribute in every way she could. And, uh, you know, she was just determined that that's what she was going to do. And she did it. It was funny. And, uh, <laughs> This one says, well, this is one of her funny pictures. It says, warning, mouth operates faster than brain. <laughs> <laughs>
that was that was her sense of humor too but yeah she just was one of those people that just had so many uh you know she just she did take this whole thing like you know she took it in stride like she mm-hmm. she knew what was going to happen she knew there was nothing she could do about it to stop it um once she you know accepted it and realized that that you know this is what was happening but the day she i was going to say the day she was diagnosed um I, I, I said, Hey, I want to, I, I need to talk to the doctor for a minute. I'll be right back. So I went back to the doctor and I said, I said, doc, I said, now you're going to shoot straight with me. Cause I'm her mom and you're going to tell me exactly what the hell's going on. Like, I want to know what's going on with my daughter. You're going to shoot straight with me. I said, no games, no BS. I want to know. I don't care about PHI. I want to know, you know, this is my daughter. And he said, honestly, he goes, I don't think she's got more than five years. That's mm-hmm. what he told me. He goes, so you need to help her with transitioning and getting things in order, preparing her children, all of those things. And, you know, he goes, because it's going to be a hard, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough for the family and everybody because of the situation, you know. And he goes, this is the hardest part is me having to tell families that this is what's going to happen to their loved ones, you know, is Mm -hmm. these kind of things. And, And unfortunately, you know, of course, they never can say, well, a certain date. They, there's no way to know that. And what was so crazy about her death was we had been just been to her doctor, like not even two weeks before. Um, she was doing really well. Her white blood cell count was great. She was looking really sharp and good. Um, she had uh, just, I mean, she just looked beautiful. Like her, every, all her numbers were good. Everything was up the way it was supposed to. It started her on a, a different medicine that seemed to be working. She seemed to be just really kind of upbeat and everything seemed to be going good. And then um, that following Monday, she had been at my house. We had had a good day. I'd taken her to a different doctor appointment for something different. And then she went to uh, her daughter's softball potluck at the end of the year, potluck softball thing that night and then the next day she was sicker than a dog and I don't know if she got food poisoning or caught the flu bug or what but her immune system was really crappy mm. and um she just was sick all week she couldn't fight it off no matter what she did she just could not fight it off and I kind of stayed away from her because my immune system is not that great either and if I catch stuff I just get really really miserably sick and so we were just talking on the phone every day and I was checking on her every day. And, you know, if she needed anything, the kids would run down to this bottom of the stairs and get it from me and I, they'd run it up to her and that kind of stuff. And then I'd gotten a phone call that Sunday from her daughter, her youngest asking me if I could come pick her up because she needed a break because she, she had such a connection with mama and it was so hard for her to see mama like that. And then her and her sister kind of butted heads all the time. So sometimes they would just need a break from each other and they always knew they could call me. I just lived a mile from them and I would just run down and pick them up, you know, and just give them, let them have some space. Mm -hmm. What an emotional thing for them to live with every single day, you know? And so um, that's what I would do. And so I had picked up Tori, brought her over here. um, And then I went and dropped her off that night, called my daughter, talked to her on the phone, told, asked her how she was doing. She said she was feeling much better. I said, well, you better be, because if you're not, you're going to the doctor tomorrow morning. That was Sunday night. And we talked for a minute, and I said, I love you, baby. She goes, I'm just tired, Mom. I'm going to go to sleep now. I said, okay, baby, I love you. I'll see you in the morning. And that's the last time I talked to her. So sorry. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. And then I got a blood-curdling scream at 3.15 in the morning from my granddaughter. 
screaming in my ear saying, Grandma, Grandma, Mama's dead. Mama's dead. My Mama's dead. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you need to get here now. And then I got there and the cops wouldn't let me even go in there and see her or nothing. They wouldn't even let me go in the room until they confirmed that this was like a murder or something, you know. Yeah, it's protocol. And I said, look, all her damn paperwork is right there in the back of the the door because she had everything in her folder for, you know, EMSs and that kind of stuff so Mm -hmm. that they could see that she had this, you know, diagnosis and this was all her prescriptions and everything that she had going on. And I mean, she had a list like I can't even tell you. She took 37 different pills, for God's sake. Wow. Yeah, she had so much medicine. It was ridiculous because she had, you know, neuropathy and this and that. I mean, everything you could think of she had because this this type of MS just attacks your body. It's awful stuff. And how she kept her mind from going insane, like, I don't even know. Like, I had to go. To, I put myself in counseling, like, right after she was diagnosed because I didn't know how I was going to prepare myself to talk to her kids and help her transition and help my husband and my my other kids understand what was happening and and then I had to help myself and nobody was helping me so I had to have somebody help me because I didn't have anybody to help me and so I put myself in counseling so I could have some help because I didn't know what to do and I didn't have anybody to guide me through it you know and, and when I knew it I just knew it because the day that she passed the very first thing that happened was what do we do mom you know, everybody wanted to know what to do. Nobody knew what to do. They had five years to plan everything out, and they never even made a plan. Like they didn't even know. They didn't even know what they what, what her wishes were. I knew them because her and I talked about it, but she and her husband never talked about it. So I had to do all the arrangements, everything. And so it was like it all fell on my shoulders. And you talked about being it being hard when you're the grieving mom. On top of it, you know, mm-hmm. like it was just, it kicked my butt, to be honest with you, because I was just so, you know, I was just so <laughs> distraught over all of it. And here, I, I mean, I had to wait to grieve until after it was all done because, and then I sat in my house, I'm not kidding, I sat in my house for a year and I just felt like I was in this, like in this catatonic freaking state where I just couldn't even, you know, where I couldn't even breathe half the time because I felt like I was just, completely out of it you know and um this is a, one of her good pictures here it's a beautiful face can you see that my girl oh she is yeah. beautiful yeah she had the prettiest blue eyes i just love her blue eyes i miss her so much every day and i do so what kind of advice would you give to other families who are going through the same thing that you have gone through um well, if they have the chance to talk to them before they pass, get get their wishes and write it down and and try to make it as pain. You know, it's it's hard to ask those questions. It's so hard to ask those questions, but it's got to be done. It's so much easier if you if you can do it. Um, I helped my mother in law through her transition. She was diagnosed in January in the, of um, two thousand and four, um, and in January and then she passed in June but so we had all that time and you know her and I went to the funeral home together and she picked out everything and how she wanted it and her plot and the whole thing and it was hard but we did it and um I just think that it's even though those questions are hard questions to have to ask um I think it's better to ask them and and get it out there so that it's much easier in the end because 
even though I knew what my daughter's wishes were, um, I wished she had talked more to her family, her husband, and given him more of a clue. Um, because like up here in Vancouver, for example, there's only like four, uh, cemeteries up here and then three of them are kind of cruddy and I wouldn't put her there anyway and the fourth one was pretty expensive and she wanted to be cremated and so she's sitting on a shelf in my living room you know because I just don't feel comfortable putting her anywhere right now and um, so I just feel like you have to you have to really nail that stuff down have that stuff written down ahead of time Mm -hmm. do it for yourself do it for your own stuff too get your own stuff done and make it a little easier on your family. That's great uh, advice. Yeah, it's really, it's just a, such a hard thing to go through anyway. And once you have it written down, it makes it a lot easier. And then the other thing that was really tough for her husband, I think, is she had all the passwords to the computer for all the utility bills. And she paid all the bills and nobody could get into the computer because she had the passwords. And he didn't even know you know, and here she knew she was going to pass away because she had this horrible disease, but then she never communicated to him how to access any of that. So after she, here she passes away suddenly like this, he didn't have any way to get a hold of, you know, access the bills or anything. So I, I strongly suggest, this is what my husband and I have done. We did this years ago. We made a list. We have a master list that we keep in the computer in a special folder it's password protected, so only him and I can get it. I have the password. He has the password. And then we have a special folder that we keep all the all the people that we I'm, I'm to contact if something happens to him and vice versa. So, you know, we have, like, I have access to his military pay, his work, you know, all his work information, you know, his um, – his life insurance policy information, all of that's written down and put in a folder. And I know this one folder is the one folder I just need to pull when this all happens. When he goes, if he goes before me, at least I know where I need to go to locate these things because it's, it's too hard to try and figure it all out, you know? And I, I, I work, I don't work, but I hang out with a bunch of senior people, um, very a lot older than me. And, um, I hear a lot of the times the same problem where they don't know where their husbands put things, you know. And so I just suggest that everybody needs to get that done because it just makes it much easier. That's really, really good advice. It's easier to do it that way. Um, you know, I kind of had to struggle with my husband again to understand how important I felt like it was to me. And and then I think after he experienced what my daughter and my son-in-law situation was where he you know, our poor son-in-law, he's like, I can't find anything. Do you? And the only reason why he even was able to get in was because his oldest daughter thought she might know mom's password and tried it and it worked. But other than that, I mean, nobody knew it. It was just random, you know, and it was just like, I think I know what it is, dad. Let me try this one, you know, kind of thing. And she happened to have the right one. So yeah, just, you know, make that known. Um, I, like, I know what it is, make it, make sure that each spouse knows what it is. And, and even if you have to give it to your most, most responsible oldest kid, in case both parents, something happened to both parents, mm-hmm. because it just makes it much easier, especially yeah. when you have life insurance policies and pensions and military pay and all that kind of stuff. That's so, you know, there's so much stuff. And I mean, you know, the widow is going to get, you know, need that information before, the bills are due again the next mm-hmm. month, <laughs> you know, and, and then to pay for a funeral too, you yeah. know, so, 
it's just, it's the hardest thing to have to talk to a, a person about. I didn't know how to talk to her about it, but I just knew that I had to. And, you know, she just, she wanted things easy. She told me that she goes, mom, I don't want you guys to do a funeral for me. I just want you to do a celebration of life, make it simple, make it fun. We had a potluck. That's what she wanted. So we just did a big potluck at church and we did a pretty basic ceremony for her and just invited everybody. She goes, just put it on Facebook and blast it out there and let whoever wants to come, come. I had 200 people show up. I'm not kidding you. Wow. I was not kidding you. I was, I, and when I started getting RSVPs and they were getting, the numbers were getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was like, how am I going to feed these people? You know, because I didn't have the budget for that. Nothing was budgeted for that for, you know, they didn't have any money set aside for this kind of a thing. And so I had to rely on this club that I'm, I'm in and I talked to them and everybody here at Clark County newcomers, they're just wonderful here in Vancouver. They stepped up and contributed salads and, you know, chips and stuff to drink and a couple people bought chicken and, you know, and just made it happen and took it completely off my shoulders. It was wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah. It was just absolutely fabulous. It really made a big, huge difference for me. And, and I was so grateful that, that I didn't have to, you know, that I didn't have to deal with that part of it because mm -hmm. I, honestly, I don't think I could have handled it. Like, like that was just so scary. And, um, another thing that I'll say to all of, you know, all of the listeners out there, um, there's, there's a book out there. It's called live your dash. And it was given to me when my daughter was diagnosed and, um, I gave it to her as a gift because it's very, very important for all of us to live in our dash, to live our dash. And the dash is the space that's between our birth and our death. And I think that how we live our lives um, in between those two dates is, is very important. And this is like a, this little book is just like a poem almost. It's like an 80 page poem that was written by um, a lady's name is Linda Ellis. And I hope it's okay for me to share this with you guys. Yes, of course. Uh, but I'll tell you what, um, this basically says, make every moment matter. And I'll tell you what it is. I gave it to her and she, she just said, mom, I'm going to make that my mantra. Like that's going to be the thing that I, I live for, for, for the rest of my life. And she did, she took that and she ran with it. She made every day count. She says, mom, I'm going to make every day count. If that means I lay in this bed, if that's all I can do today is lay in this bed and reach out to other people and try to be positive to other people, if that's all I can do. And she did that, you know, she did that. And just recently, um, you know, with the pandemic and everything that's been going on, it's been so hard for everybody. I just started, I just joined a new group recently and they call it um, Happy Mail. And it's like everybody all over the world is sending happy mail to other people throughout the world. And it's amazing. Like I'm getting, I'm getting postcards from people, you know, across the nation right now and letters and we're just sending stuff back. And it's just people that we don't know. It's just people that are in this group that we're just sending hellos to other people that is so across cool. the world. And like, I got something from New Zealand and Australia and England and, it's just to say hello and hi, and I hope you have a great day and to brighten our spirits because it's been so, you know, negative and terrible. So for the last year and a half, two years now, 
and I wrote my story. I put my story out there of what's happened in my world for the last two years, two and a half years on there and kind of just told about my daughter passing and then all this surgery I had to go through and my dad passing and just basically my depression and anxiety and just everything that's happened to me in the last two and a half years. And I'm not kidding you. I had 71 ladies respond to me in wow. a matter of 10 minutes. I'm not kidding you. And I mean, I'm getting mail every day from people who are just, you know, just being, you know, so empathetic. And I just think that that's what we need to do. We really need to do that. But I suggest people read that book if they can get their hands on it. If you borrow it from the library, um, it's not that much. I think it's like a maybe a $10 book or something. But it's such amazing way it was written. And it really helped me to understand that there are so much more important things in our lives and that we just have to change the way we think about things, you know. And I've met people now that just because I put my my name out there, my story out there, and people have just, you know, embraced it and helped me come out of my depression. And, I mean, I kid you not, if I hadn't had really good people step up and step into my life, um, I don't think I'd be here because it's been pretty tough for me. But they pulled me out of the dark hole, so to speak, with having COVID twice this year. And um, legit, I had it in, in December to February. My husband, um, I just remember part of that time, I was literally um, so sick, I was begging to die because I was so sick. I mean, I'd been, I had 103 temperature for eight solid days. Oh my God. I was so sick and so exhausted. And I had just been through so much between my surgeries and my baby girl dying and my life and the way everything had been crazy and and my sweet, sweet husband and him just laying there begging me to please not to give up because he needed me and that he was there for me and that he cared about me and that he loved me and, and that I had three really good co-workers that I hadn't worked with in 15 years that showed up in my daughter's celebration of life they didn't show up for her they showed up for me and it was the nicest thing i hadn't seen them for quite a while but they had seen the facebook page and seen that he passed away and they stopped their lives to be with me that day and they the day her the day my first granddaughter was born her firstborn they they were at her baby shower and um uh, you know they celebrated when her daughter was born with me at being a first grandma, first time grandma, and they've stuck with me all this time. And even though I hadn't seen them for quite a while, probably a good, probably a good five, six years, they stopped their lives to come and just hold my hand and give me a hug and tell me that they loved me and cared about me. And that's what living in your dash means. It means caring about others and knowing that sometimes all they need is just a hug. Somebody could care about you. And that's my story. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Loved Ones Lost. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and I hope it helps you to heal your heartache if you are grieving the loss of a loved one. If you would like to share your child's story on our show, 
please send me an email at lovedonesloftpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing your stories on Loved Ones Lost.